Blog Talk Radio. Hello, good morning. This is Michael Vandervoort um, on Drive to HR. It's uh, Friday, October 9th, and this show is one of two shows that we're doing today. So normally Robin Schooling, my co-host, would be with me, but she is buried in work and will not be able to join us. So I'm going to be running the show today by, by myself. Um, and I would like to introduce our guests. Uh, our, so our guests today are David Smith and Brad Johnson, and they have written a book that we're going to talk about. But guys, welcome to Drive Through HR. How are you this morning? Great. Thanks for having us, Michael. Doing great. Yeah, absolutely. Good. I'm glad everybody's having a good morning. Um, why don't you um, – so, well, sorry. As, as, as I said in the pre-show, most of our listens come from, uh, from downloads, but for those who may be dialing in and listening, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, David. Why don't you start, tell people who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks. And so this is David, David Smith, and I am a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and the College of Leadership and Ethics, and I'm a sociologist. I do all my research in the area of gender work and family, so looking at gender perspectives of, of work, careers, and, and family. Um, before that, uh, I taught at the Naval Academy, which is where I met my, my good friend and colleague and co-author, uh, Dr. Brad Johnson, who you'll hear from in just a second, and uh, together we've written two books. Uh, the first came out in 2016, and that's Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. And our new book that will be launching here on October 13th, next week, we're really excited about, and that's Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. I'll also let everybody know that uh, I spent about 30 years as a Navy pilot, uh, the last 10 of those is an academic at the Naval Academy with Brad, uh, but that informed, again, a lot of my own experiences before I became an academic. Brad? Yeah, so I'm Brad Johnson. I'm a clinical psychologist and a professor in the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law at the Naval Academy, and I have been a, a researcher and a writer on the topic of mentoring relationships for my whole career. And then it was really engaging with Dave when he joined our department as a faculty member around this issue of gender. And I've long been aware that women, you know, in the research we see women don't get the same kind of mentorship. They don't get sponsored uh, as often as men do. And, and I was concerned about that and mystified, and Dave and I began to do the research, and we found that there are a number of reasons why men just don't engage. And so we decided, hey, we can do some really good research in this area and help men come to the table and engage deliberately and really help move the needle on gender equity. So, so that's what our two books have been about. Nice. And it's not that often that we have two PhDs on the show, uh, so I feel I feel slightly intimidated. But we're going to go ahead and plunge on through, despite your heavy credentials. Um, so, and when I when I put together sort of the questions I was going to ask, I, I said that the first question I'm going to ask you is a bit of a joke, but but it, it, it's actually not, I guess. And and I just think it's a kind of a a, a less formal place to start this conversation from, which I hope will go well. But anyway, the question is, 
what makes you guys, besides your PhDs and all that fun stuff, more qualified than me or any other guy to discuss being a good ally to women in the workplace? Yeah, that's a that's a great yeah. question, and this is David. <laughs> uh, so, we had let me give, let's give you a quick story. When we were writing the first book, Athena Rising, we were talking to some of our female colleagues about uh, what we were doing, the research, what we were finding, and how we we're writing this. We're going to write this book about how men could be better engaged in cross-gender mentoring relationships, sponsoring other professional relationships in the workplace. And it was funny because they would look at us and go, you realize you're two dudes talking about women and gender and relationships. (laughs) And and we were like, yeah, but it was really important because it it brought out the importance that for us, um, that women's voices had to be front and center in the book. Right, their experiences, their voices, their perspectives, and in both books, uh, both Good Guys and Athena Rising, that is the case because we had uh, the opportunity to interview women across every profession and industry, and these were mostly really high-flying women, uh, senior executives in many cases, CEOs, um, and then there were a few other people who were more junior to get their those experiences as well, and for Athena Rising, you know, we were focused again on what did great mentoring look like and what did they most appreciate from their male mentors and then from the new book, Good Guys, really what did, how did guys show up as allies in the workplace? What did it look like? What did they do? What did they not do? What did they most appreciate? And then what did women really want men to understand and know uh, in, in terms of actionable things that they could be doing to make the workplace better for them? And, you know, which was great. And we had, then we had the opportunity to go back and interview uh, men that they nominated as allies in the workplaces. Uh, and cause, so we didn't, we didn't allow guys to, to self-promote their way into the book and self-proclaim themselves as allies. These were women who acknowledged and said, yeah, these guys are great allies and here's why. And then I had a chance to go back and interview these men. And, again, tying together their voices, their experiences, the practical actions that they, they took to make it better in the workplace was so important as we, as again, I think the narrative and the story that goes with that is really important because Brad and I come back with the evidence uh, from social and behavioral science that is important to back that up. Yeah, and I would just yeah. add to that, Michael, that, that Dave and I are not more qualified. I think I think that we have just been more willing to step in it and make mistakes and, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe feel uncomfortable more than some other men uh, have been. And, and, and I think Dave's right on. I think what we did that made us qualified to sort of be the messenger in this case is we really spent the time listening to women and, and we really wanted to hear their voices. We wanted to hear from them. What do you wish men knew about being better in this space as mentors or sponsors mm-hmm. or allies in the workplace? So I think it was the listening, and and I think that's given us a whole new appreciation of how men can be better. Yeah, and and I, I think I think that I think all that is, you know kind of resonates. I had a chance. Uh, we had, we had a, a, another guest on earlier this week. His name is Derek, uh, and he's with an organization called Work Human, um, and they run a big conference every year, except this year because of COVID. But about three years ago, I guess it was, we were in Austin. I had a chance to see Tarana Burke, Ronan Farrell, Ashley Judd on a panel. You know, when Me Too was kind of like right front and center, at, you know, at, at its zenith, I guess. 
And it, it's funny because now we have, it's not funny, um, it's ironic because now we have kind of Black Lives Matter and, and other issues up in front of us race. We talk about this stuff forever, but it's really hard to crack, uh, even with the best of intent, I think. And that, I'm editor, editorializing before I ask you this question. I, and the question is, um, I think most men want to be good allies, or at least they think they want to, but they don't know how to do that. So it, it, has your research shown that that's the case? And if, if, if not, I guess, how does one get started to be a good ally? Yeah, so this is Brad. I can jump in, and Dave, you, you'll probably have some other thoughts on this. But, yeah, I, I think that you get right to the the immediate sort of rationale for the title of the book, Michael. And we call this Good Guys because there are a lot of guys out there, exactly as you described, that their heart is in the right place. They genuinely have motivation to contribute to better equity at work. They just don't know how to get started. So we think of these as good guys, right? They're just looking for a playbook or a toolbox, and that's that's what we have tried to provide here. Um, I think there there is a gap for us men, and, and Dave and I often point to this great study showing that, you know, when you ask men, are you doing all you can in the workplace, about 77% of guys say, yep, I'm really contributing, uh, you know, as an ally to gender equity. And then you go ask women in those same companies, and only about 40% of women say, yep, men mm -hmm. are doing all they can. So, so we've got a big gap here. And I, I think in terms of how to get started and closing that gap, and, you know, I think I'm doing a lot, but I may not be, is I'll just mention a couple things, and I know Dave will have some others. Um, Self-educate, right? Read books like Good Guys. Um, go to conferences. Uh, go to uh, events where gender and diversity issues are being discussed and just listen. Um, ask women really thoughtful questions about their experiences at work. Um, you know, approach that with a real learning orientation so they pick up on your on your humility. And then, you know, one other one I'll mention is you've got to get over your own anxiety. If you're a guy who's worried about having conversations or mentoring or lunch or whatever it is with women at work, we guys have to get over our anxiety. We can't make that her problem. And I think too many guys stay on the sidelines because they have these false narratives that women are dangerous to interact with at work. Mm. Yeah, I think just a couple others to add to that very quickly. One is that I think we we don't understand the what the problem is in terms of women's experiences and the challenges they face in the workplace, or in some cases, uh, just a kind of almost a uh, a misunderstanding or misperception of what the problem is, or that or how bad it really is out there. Because there are, I think, a lot of men because they believe in in gender equity and that uh, or equality in the workplace that they that that it's actually happening. And and the reality is very different, of course. And so there's a there's a bit of that self education and self awareness that Brad was talking about that is really important. The other one that we find all the time, and this gets a little bit of the anxiety piece that Brad mentioned is men have a discomfort around talking about things like gender. And, and, and this is one of the challenges of getting men engaged in this work is that often we see gender initiatives or gender diversity and inclusion programs or women's leadership conferences. And guys look at that and we go, oh, that's not for me uh, because that's for women. And, and this is the challenge around the conversation is that it's like, no, this is, a, this is a leadership issue, not a women's issue. This is a leadership issue where we all have to be engaged and involved in it. And so there's a little bit of, of flipping the narrative 
and, and trying to change the script as, as to what the problem is and who should be involved in solving this. Yeah, because some of the research that I, I think I, this is from Sherm, although I, I didn't look it up, so I could be, you know, attributing it actually to someone else um, or misattributing it. But when when Me Too was hot and heavy, there was like this unintended consequence of, or backlash where a lot of men just said, well, I'm I'm just – you know, I'm I'm just minding my own business, and they weren't gonna they weren't gonna do anything because it was easier to do nothing than it, the perception of getting into trouble, right? Um, so those are probably some of the potential good guys. What? Uh, how do you? How would you guys describe the behaviors of a bad workplace ally? And and I, and I don't mean like someone who acted like Harvey Weinstein, but you know, somebody that doesn't necessarily <laughs> get it. Yeah. Well. Dave, uh, you know, we got so many here. Do you want me to just name a yeah. couple and you can, <laughs> Go you ahead, can yeah. jump in? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, here's some, I, I, I wouldn't even call the guy an ally if he's lousy at this because one, one key thing, Michael, that we try and tell men right up front is do not call yourself an ally. Um, do the work, uh, get better, educate yourself, uh, you know, show up the right way for women in the workplace, but let her call you an ally, you know, don't, don't self-identify. But here are some ways guys get in the, into trouble. Make gender assumptions about women, right? Because she's a woman, she would never be interested in this, right? I, I don't even ask her. I make assumptions about where she'll want to go. Um, stealing women's ideas, you know, this happens all the time in meetings, mm. just like uh, interruptions of women. Um, if we want to be better allies at work, we have to make sure women get credit for their great work and their great ideas. We, we can't uh, tolerate interruptions that, that tend to be directed uh, at women. We saw that recently this week in the vice presidential debate. Women tend to get interrupted about three times more often uh, than men. Uh, and we got to all be attuned to that. And one more, um, don't be creepy. <laughs> this sounds so obvious, but too many guys, yeah. too many guys get get weird by kind of making their relationships with women flirtatious. They call good friends at work their work wife, and we're just, you know, like, no, dude, what are you doing? You you're sort of creating the context for rumors, um, and a lot of guys sabotage themselves uh, by doing. Yeah that kind of stuff at work. But Dave, other other do nots? Yeah, absolutely. And as a lot of these issues in particular, as, as we become aware, and, and again, there's an assumption here that as eventually we, we all become aware of these challenges that we have in the workplace, that when you see them, it's like the question then is what do you do about it, right? And one of the things that we, we often find is that, uh, you know, you can't be a good ally unless you're, you're confronting your if you see something, you got to say something. You got to do something about it. You can't just let it go. The the mm -hmm. privilege of of doing nothing is is not something that an ally has. You have to you have to speak up when you see that. the The other part of this that I think is so important is is really walking the talk. And so a lot of guys, as you mentioned before, are you know they believe it and they talk about it. And there's a lot of great talk and. Much like you said uh, recently around race, we're seeing the same thing. There's a lot of talk about it, but their actions don't line up, right? We don't see the action piece of this. And uh, I'll give you one example that we we see in the workplace all the time is guys will talk a good game about being allies, but then uh, in particular, so when we're thinking about 
power being allies at home, which, by the way, is part of being an ally, is that uh, you've got to be an all-in ally at home. Guys talk a good game about doing that, but then they, they're doing something completely different. For example, um, if, they, if they've got to go uh, take their kid to the doctor or another family responsibility or obligation that they might have, um, guys often will be really quiet about it and they'll just kind of, kind of sneak and slink out the side door. Right, because they don't want to. They don't want people to see them doing these kind of uh, traditionally feminine, caregiving, nurturing types of uh, of, of of work. And mm-hmm. no, that's not okay. As guys, we we have to own that too. And we we talk about you know a lot of the allies that we talked about. These men talked about how no, they did the exact opposite. They were very, they talked about leaving loudly when they would have to go do these types of responsibilities. I want everybody in the office to know that one, I'm going to do it, two, it's okay, and three, it's normal because we're parents or we're caregivers and we have a, we have a family outside, of, outside the workplace. And I expect, you know, that everybody else can do that too. So, so it normalizes it, not just for women, but also for junior men because, again, we find that junior men coming into the workplace today have a, have a little uh, more egalitarian perspective about gender roles and, and what work and family is all about and their expectations about how they're going to combine those. And they're looking to the senior men in the organization to go, oh, how do, how do they do it? How do they combine it? How do they take time off to go do these things for family that I want to do as well? And if we're, if we're not being public about it, guess what? You know, they're, gonna, they're, they're not going to be able to do it either, and they're going to not be happy about this, and this gets into retention and attrition issues that we have in the workplace today. So, you know, Aligning that action with your with the the words that you have is so critical and so important. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of funny. Um, I, I a lot of my work, personal work has been in the area of labor and employee relations um, over the years, thirty plus years. And back in the mid, this was early nineties. I was working at a company, a company that I had joined. Um, you know, a couple of years before we had a union contract come due and it needed to be re- renegotiated. And in that contract, which had been around since, you know, probably the mid forties, they still had job descriptions. Uh, we had pay rates and they had job titles, right? And they had uh, literally had classifications that said like class- classification 700 men's jobs in parentheses and, and women's jobs. Were 720. <laughs> now we had, we had tons of people, you know, the, the, it, I mean, it wasn't, it didn't apply if, if you see what I mean, we didn't follow that anymore, but that's, that's how they de- defined it at some point during it. And so one of the small things that I did was take those, you know, now not ap- applicable words out of the contract. I couldn't believe they were there to begin with, right? So, you know, I, I, I guess where I'm going with that is, like, organizations aren't necessarily focused on this at, uh, at a high level or a low level, in, you know, in, in many ways. So how, how does one begin to, you know, is it an individual choice and we do it one person by one or do, do you have to build, you know, do you have to build support in your company? I guess what I'm asking is if somebody wants to follow your advice, how do they get started? Yeah, that's a great, yeah. great question. Um, and we get that from companies a lot. And, um, you know, it, it depends a little bit on the, the culture uh, of the company, first of all, and, and, in many cases, though, the, the answer tends to be um, it's all the above because you really do need um, you need senior leadership, buy-in, uh, commitment to, to the work. You need a, a good grassroots um, 
effort and, and culture to, to really make this happen, uh, you know, get, get the motivation behind it from the, for the broad numbers in the company. And I think most important, that middle management, the frontline managers, the, the people that are, that are really in charge of uh, the day-to-day business of the organization have got to be bought mm-hmm. in to this as well. And, and you can't get the, you know, the middle managers, the frontline managers doing the everyday business, you can't get them to buy in unless they have senior leadership buy-in. Because, they're, right. again, they're, we're all busy people. We have lots of things that we're responsible for and lots of things that we're going to be held accountable for. And if my boss is not holding me accountable for it and isn't putting the pressure on and not, I don't see that it's clearly is something that is really important to them, then it's not going to probably be important to me because, again, I, I've got lots of things that are going on. Um, sure. But then once you get the buy-in, that's where the, the grassroots part of this really is helpful, developing, really making a culture out of this and, and beginning to have people understand how they can affect change at every level. It doesn't matter if you're a, a, a front, you know, first-line employee or if you're the CEO of the company. Um, you can happen at any level out there, but the, the motivation piece, I think, is really critical from a grassroots perspective. And today, we often see in a lot of companies, uh, employee resource groups or business resource groups, whatever the, 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 mm-hmm. the language is that they use for those, you already have the structure in place to, to bring this together. And these are, again, focused on, again, different demographic and, and diverse uh, groups of people in your organization that need some. And here's a, here's a great way to, to bring them about and start to work on allyship. That makes sense. <laughs> Any, anything to add or? No, I, I love Dave's approach there. I mean, I, I, I think he's okay. exactly right. Start at the top, but you've got to include the grassroots guys. So, so let me ask you this, Brad. Um, you know, with, with these, so with, with these kind of issues, you know, it could be this or, or many other issues in the workplace. There's always a, a there's always a cost, if you, if, especially if things are not running well. There's always a cost. So I don't know if you guys have done any research into like the tangible, like dollar costs. Um, and and there, I'm sure there are tons of intangible costs. You know, people who get put off by the organization and leave that, that kind of stuff. Can you talk about that for a minute? What those might look like. Yeah, I mean they they are all over the map. So I mean, you know, just from the for the individual organization, Michael. I mean, the costs are substantial. And whether you measure uh, your bottom line in terms of dollars, you know, um, whether or not you measure it in terms of mission achievement, like we do in the military, um, you see over and over again that companies that have really uh, work to achieve better not only gender diversity but real inclusion and um, balance uh, all the way up the chain you know into the c-suite in terms of leadership those companies are more creative they make more money they have better mission accomplishment if we're talking about national security or, or a, an organization like that so um, organizations that are missing it here, organizations that are not creating workplaces that are equitable and inclusive for women, what we find are simply not retaining women. You know, so I may recruit all kinds of talented women, but if I'm not retaining them and not promoting them into serious leadership, I am missing it. Uh, It's a huge missed opportunity. 
Um, I think too often we just focus on how many women we're bringing in the door and we forget the fact that if we're not promoting them and retaining them long term and engaging them as, you know, in succession planning as future leaders in the organization, we're really, we're really missing it. And then just, you know, one other one that comes to mind is the huge, um, you know, loss in terms of GDP, you know, I, world, world estimates you know, are in the trillions. Dave, I don't remember the exact number. What is it, 23 trillion we're leaving on the table uh, annually in terms of, you know, worldwide GDP uh, in, when we don't include women meaningfully in, in work the same way we include men. So huge lost opportunity, huge cost in terms of the health of individual businesses, and you see this no matter what metric you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the other the other aspect of that Michael is you think about it um companies today are are wrestling with the idea about public disclosure of things like their diversity and inclusion goals and progress that they have out there and in some cases in particular states and countries today uh, there are requirements to to publicly disclose some of that information and, and not in others. But there often there's a choice in, in the U.S. at least on how much of that they're disclosing. The the irony in of of it all is that um, investors today are are looking at this, and and if right. you're not uh, publicly disclosing it, and you're not being really transparent about how you're doing, so it's not just that hey we have this great goal or we have this program. But here's how we're doing with it, showing the progress. And in some cases, being very upfront about the fact that, well, you know, things aren't going so well right now with this in particular. Um, and, and here's what we're going to do to change that. And, you know, a great example was just in the news here, uh, I think yesterday, uh, Twitter was talking about how they're going to start paying uh, people for running their ERGs, or their, in their case, BRGs, I think they call them. Um, mm-hmm. Because, again, that these are important. The work is important. There is real work that goes in, into this, and they're going to be, these people are going to have it now part of their evaluation, so they have it in their roles and responsibilities, and we're going to value it by showing you that I, because I pay you to do the work. Um, that sends a very clear signal to investors. It sends a very clear signal to my future, the talent pool that's out there that is applying for jobs in my company, because they're looking to say, oh, well, you know, they really get this, and they're really working hard. They see the problem. They, they recognize that they've got to do work, and here's how they're addressing that specifically, because they're in the news talking about it, publicly disclosing it out there. So being transparent about how you're doing this is really important, too, to your, to your bottom line today as well as well into the future. Great. Let me let me do a quick reset here. Um, I, fortuitously, I, I booked the 45-minute show. I had forgotten that. We normally run 30 minutes, so we still have about um, 17 minutes or so and, and can get to the rest of the questions. But before I do that, I want to just tell folks that our guests today are uh, – Robin is not here. Our guests today are David Smith, Ph.D., and Brad Johnson, Ph.D., or Dr. Smith and Johnson. And we're talking about their book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. Um, so, so Brad, um, I guess David just finished up, so I'll ask you this. Uh, I want to flip the script for just a second. Um, I can go off our questions for a moment. What happens if, like, how, well, let me just say this. What should women be doing uh, if, say, they're struggling to find allies in a bad workplace? What should they do? And, you know, do you have any thoughts from that perspective? Yeah, yeah. So, 
I, this is such a good question, Michael, because, you know, all, a lot of the work Dave and I do is about uh, messaging to men about how to get, engage here and get better. Um, but, there, you know, this is we're really talking about a collaborative relationship. And one of the messages that we give men is, hey, this is not about rescuing women, right? Um, women don't mm -hmm. need you to rescue them. You just got to be a better partner and collaborator. And you got to be all in because real gender equity is good not only for women. It's good for you. It's good for your organization. Everyone wins here. But for women, <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, I think there are a number of things. So on the individual level, if I'm looking for male allies, if I'm looking for uh, men who might be great mentors in the workplace, um, look for the guys that um, other women are already endorsing as, uh, you know, great colleagues, um, men that get it men that seem to be interested in the experience of women in the workplace, men who already are with their behavior spending time mentoring and sponsoring a lot of uh, junior women. These are guys who are already, it's already part of their brand, right? And, and so mm -hmm. these are the guys that's kind of easy, easy to see these allies because you watch their actual behavior at work. So I want to pull those guys in to leadership. I want to pull those guys into conversations. If I'm a woman running a, a women's BRG or ERG, uh, and we want to develop a male allyship component to that, I want to look to those guys. And all you have to do is sample a few women in the workplace and say, who are those allies? Pull those guys in and say, would you take the lead on helping us start up this male allyship sort of component within the women's ERG? Um, would you become sort of the spokesman or partner with us uh, in, in helping to launch this? Often it's those guys, especially if they're a bit more senior and they've got some social capital and influence in the company, those are the guys who are going to be great at recruiting other men because there's often a lot of good guys, as we've already said, Michael. You know, these guys are, you know, they got their toe in the pool, right? They haven't made the dive mm -hmm. yet. They're kind of, they're testing the water. And if you get a couple of other high-profile, influential men to lead the way on this, often that opens the door to bring a lot of these guys, you know, to the table and to the conversation. So I think that's one strategy. Look for the guys that are already demonstrating some of these behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, as an example, one of the one of the companies that we worked with, uh, Bear Monsanto, their uh, their women's ERG was called Women in Science and Engineering Wise was their acronym, and mm -hmm. they had uh, for a long time had several men who had been a part of that ERG, and very active in supporting them in their programming and policy changes and things going on within the company. Um, and they decided at one point that, hey, we'd like to pull the, there's more guys out here. We need to pull more men into this conversation so we can broaden this conversation out across the organization. And so they ended up creating a kind of a, a men's auxiliary to the, uh, to the women's ERG. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, they had to have a fun name, so they called themselves the Wise Guys. Uh, so the women in science and engineering, so they're tied, the guys that are tied to that. And, and one of the great practices I think they had was, one, they shared programming because they, they were kind of tied together. Everything they did, they shared programming. The, they had co-leads for each of the organizations. They still do. Um, so they have a man who's a co-lead for, for the women's ERG, and they have a woman who's a co-lead for the, for the wise guys. 
And and again, I I think it's such a great uh, exemplar when you think about collaboration with allyship with right not for but with uh, each other, and and we always like to to highlight that. And, and there's a lot of other organizations today that are kind of following that same model, but it's it's really important because there's a there's a sharing of information, the sharing of knowledge, uh, of a common motivation to create change within the organization broadly. And, and they have a lot of great executive sponsorship, which, I, again, important to pull in the senior level as well. Um, and I think they, they, they're really good about then bringing in, from an educational perspective, um, experts and, and different programming to, to help people at the individual level. Hey, based on what I do in my, you know, at my work with my team, what can I be doing? And, and I think the women there in particular are really good about uh, mentoring men, the men that work for them. And I, again, I think this mm-hmm. is a great way to make change is to, you have a mentoring relationship with guys. And so help them, help them do that. And then in other cases, they're just peers or, or friends or colleagues. Um, and they're very, you know, very open about sharing feedback. And I think, but it takes, you know, again, men have to be willing to um, be, be ready to receive that feedback and then to, and then to use it, right, to, to engage in a conversation about how they can be better uh, for themselves as leaders and better for the people that they work with. And, and again, I think it's just a, it's a great kind of a grassroots way to, to bring this together. Makes sense. Um, something you said made me think on this question. What's the difference between mentorship and allyship? Yeah, I can I can address that. Um, this is Brad. Uh, you know, it's a good question. Um, you know, often they they don't need to be mutually exclusive. I don't think, Michael. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think men that are oriented toward wonderful allyship in the workplace, which I would frame as a broader umbrella than mentoring. But a lot of the guys that are great allies might be doing some terrific cross-gender mentoring as well. So, um, you know, Dave and I define allyship as uh, broadly having two big components to it. You know, number one is the interpersonal accountability. How do I show up with, uh, you know, really great intent and deliberate um, sort of engagement for my female colleagues? Um, you know, and that's all, we'll get into some of those details here in a minute, but that's the interpersonal yep. piece, how I show up. And then, then there's the public systemic piece, you know, am I a disruptor? when inappropriate stuff is going on? Am I an advocate for policies that work for everybody in the workplace? So allyship is this broader commitment and it's a broader journey and it it takes a while to really, I think, become an effective ally in all those different areas. The mentorship piece is often in that interpersonal category of allyship, right? And that's, you know, the mentoring part I would just define as really having a commitment to perpetuating and developing and furthering and supporting the career of uh, women around you, uh, you know, if, if we're mm-hmm. talking about cross-gender mentorship. So, you know, I'm interested not only in your career development, I'm also interested in how you're doing, right? How's, how's work life going? How are you faring just in terms of your own kind of health? Um, I'm kind of in your corner uh, when I'm your mentor, and I'm, I'm committed to your, your prosperity, as it were, both personally and professionally. Gotcha. Um, so we're down to under 10 minutes left, um, and we had 
three questions, but um, let's maybe shorten them up to try to get get them in. Um, so you guys, you guys have a GQ, uh, a gender intelligence uh, rate. I don't know if it's a rating. I'm not. You, the term is is gender intelligence. So let's let's talk about that quickly. What that looks like and what what it means. Yeah. So gender intelligence. What we're talking about here is, is developing that awareness about how other people might experience the workplace differently than we do as men. And and you know we're talking we're focusing here obviously gender intelligence on a you know the gender perspective, but allyship can be again expanded out from any kind of a of a dominant or majority group I would say to to some to another group's experience in the workplace, and we're we're focused here in particular on gender. Um, but I think the important part of that is that not to again as we begin to learn and, and develop this awareness of how women might experience the workplace differently is not assume that, you know, women are a monolith, just like men are not a monolith. You know, we don't all have exactly the same experiences in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Women don't either. And I think this was really clear as you begin to look at some of the intersections in particular. So women of color experience the workplace very different than, than men, uh, white women do. And that in particular, I think, is something that we have to be aware of. And, and again, to develop that gender intelligence, part of that is understanding some of the intersectional aspects of that as well. We had uh, one of the men that we interviewed with, a, he was a, a senior vice president at, at, a, at a major aerospace industry company, and he was, um, he was working with this, this black woman, he's a white man, and she's a software developer, and she was getting ready to make this pitch to, um, to a group of, of executives at the company. Um, and he was telling her as she was preparing for this that, hey, you know, when you go into this audience, you need to go in there with a certain amount of attitude and maybe a little bit of swagger and just really show them that you're, you know, you're in charge and, and you've got this. And she just looked at him and said, I can't do that. And, and he mm-hmm. thought for a second and he's like, oh, wow, you know, you're right. Um, and it just, but it, it really spoke to that idea that, hey, you just can't treat everybody the same exactly. And you have to be very attuned to how pe- different people experience the workplace a little bit different. And it's a learning, right? It's a learning environment for all of us. And as allies, we're learning along the way to, to expand that. And then once you've developed that GQ, then it's now you can look for it. And here's another example real quick for that Brad and I found uh, in both sets of interviews we did for the books we wrote. Women told us all the time about how they would have this great idea in a team meeting and they'd put it out there and it just would just be like a dud. It would land flat and nobody would be like, yeah, whatever. And three guys later, he put the same thing out there, repackaged as his own, and it was the greatest idea since sliced bread. Um, and this is where women's ideas, you know, they don't get credit for them all the time and they get, have their ideas stolen. We call it bro appropriation when, when men uh, take women's ideas. And But I asked Brad, I was like, hey, have you ever had that happen to you? He's like, no, nah. like I haven't either. But so it was something, again, it wasn't within um, our awareness or within our GQ, right? But now mm-hmm. I'm aware of it. Now when I see it happening, I can, I, I can recognize it. And then I can choose how, how am I going to respond at that point and say, well, hey, John, how is that any different than what Mary just said? Or that was a great idea that Mary had here, and I think we ought to explore that a little more deeply. Right? But I can give emphasis to it in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. I, I just would not have recognized it. I would have missed. Right. Um, we, believe it or not, we are down to just under, just over five minutes. Um, so the, I guess 
even though we had a couple specific questions, let's wrap up um, with tips for, you know, I'm a good guy. I'm Joe good guy. I don't know what to do besides buy your book. We're, we're, what should they be doing to get started to become a better ally? If you can give us a quick list. Yeah. Happy to. So, Dave, why don't I jump into the interpersonal, just give a few, and sure. why don't you do some of the public? Yeah. Yep. So here's some of the interpersonal, right? Here, if you want to get started as a good guy, um, want to get better at this, these are some of the ways that you can just show up in your interpersonal relationships with women to be more effective. So number one, include women. Don't let women be excluded from key meetings, key conversations, um, you know, even social bonding kinds of things. Decenter, step out of the spotlight. Uh, men don't always have to talk or talk first or talk the most. Um, do whatever you can to lateral the mic to some talented women around you so they get the spotlight. Uh, I can be more conscious of that. I can listen generously. I can avoid making assumptions about my female, and that will go with the with the listening. I can validate her experience, right? When she shares some of the obstacles um, she's encountered, I'm not going to dismiss that. I'm not going to gaslight her. I'm going to affirm her experience and, and learn about it and then find out how can I collaborate with you to, to see if we can help you have a different experience at work and, and how can I shut down some things that are not helpful. Um, and then a last one, provide transparency. Don't keep secrets from your female colleagues, especially around pay and benefits and upcoming promotions. Too often men share this with each other and we don't share it with our female colleagues. And it's no wonder that we have a huge pay gap because women are often left out of this intelligence, you know, that we share uh, among men. Dave, some public mm -hmm. things? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, yep, the employment processes uh, are great places the employment processes right. are great places to look, and so everything from a recruiting, a hiring, promoting, advancing, bias exists in there. And when you find it, then you've got to call it out and then figure out a way to make it more equitable for everyone. And finally, I would just say that as men, we've got to be able to um, advocate for policies like paid sick leave and parental leave and flexible work arrangements in a way that everybody can take advantage of them. And make sure when it applies to us that we're taking advantage of it and we're being very public about it. That's fantastic. You, this has been a really great. Uh, this has been a really great discussion between three guys, uh, which is ironic in many ways, I guess. But thanks for sharing some really great information, <laughs> and thanks for uh, when the show glitched yeah. last week. I'm glad we got you back because uh, this has been a very, uh, very fun uh, episode. Um, our guests to wrap up. Our guests are Dr. David Smith and Dr. Brad Johnson. They've written a book called Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace, which you probably know if you've been listening to the podcast. But Brad and Dave, where can people find you? We've got about uh, about 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah so, so this is Dave. Uh, go, uh, go, oh, go, go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. Yeah, so we, you can find us on our website, uh, workplaceallies.com, all one word, workplaceallies.com, and you can f read more about uh, the work that we're doing, read more about the books, and where we're speaking, and, and the companies and groups that we're working with out there. And certainly, uh, both books are available through Harvard Business Review Press, and you can find them on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, or your favorite uh, online outlet, or certainly, your, hopefully, your local bookstore as well. Okay, and Brad? Nope, that's it. Dave covered it. Really fun, okay, fun cool. conversation, yeah. Michael. 
Yeah, it was. I really appreciate it. Like I said, it was it, it was a lot of fun, and I'm glad I booked the extra time. So I want to thank you for being our guest today. As I told you in the pre-show, the link will be up in, in a couple minutes. I'll send it your way. And for everyone else that's listening, uh, have a happy Friday afternoon and a, hopefully a relaxing and healthy weekend. I'm going to go ahead and end the show, guys. Thanks. Mm-hmm.